Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the Yorkshire Gamers Elite Big War Games podcast. And today we are on episode 34. And uh, this is being recorded on the 2nd of December 2022 to come out later on this afternoon. And today I'm going to be speaking with Rohan Saravanamutu. And uh, Rohan has just uh, released a book called Leipzig, The Battle of the Nations, a Wargamer's Guide to that very battle. So we'll be talking, as we always do, about war, uh, Rohan's history and uh, the various bits and pieces before we get on to the book itself. So, a little bit of housekeeping before we start, as usual. And tomorrow will be the 3rd of December. And if you're local to me in Pudsey, there's a uh, war game show run by the Wakefield and District War Games uh, Society at uh, Pudsey. It's a lovely little show. Um, it's uh, it's not partisan. It's not a huge salute thing, but it's a nice, friendly little show. So uh, if you are in the area, pop in and say hello. I shall be there with my Italian Wars game that I had on Fiesco. If you are listening to this and uh, you are able, um, I don't often beg on this program well i do to be honest um uh, if you if you have opportunity if you could follow the podcast if you could leave a like or review uh, on podbean or on apple podcasts or wherever you follow it just to increase the um visibility of the podcast the more reviews the more likes uh, the more follows it gets the more it moves up the uh, the charts and uh, the viewing uh, figures, etc., and more people get to listen, which is uh, a good or a bad thing, depending on your opinion, I suppose. The podcast passed uh, 50,000 downloads a couple of uh, weeks ago, and I can't remember whether I mentioned it on here, so I'm going to say it again because that is absolutely amazing. You know, 50,000 people listened once and turned off, I could understand, but they keep coming back, and you're very, very welcome to keep coming back. And 30,000 of those, just over 30,000, have been on audio, and 20,000 uh, the visual version on YouTube. And I did a recent survey on um, Twitter and Facebook, and it seems about 60 to 70 of you listen to them on audio and uh, the other 33 or the other 30 or so listen on uh, youtube uh, depending on how they're set up at home and a great a lovely four percent of you do both i love you i love you thank you very much for doing it twice the episodes at the moment are coming out at quite a fast pace, um, once every two weeks, which is how I started originally. Um, it is quite difficult to do, uh, and I can feel the, the boards creaking a little bit, but I wanted to catch up uh, on my extremely extensive uh, list of guests who are coming on. And uh, There's another two episodes pl planned in December, more of that at the end of the show, and then two in January, and then from February onwards, I should be returning to my uh, two and five week, uh, so the second and fifth week of each month. Uh, so that's a little bit of news for you. Um, so it's time to get on with the show and uh, speak to Rohan. And uh, we had a lovely chat that I was able to uh, edit the uh, episode, apart from these spoken bits at the start, on my way down to and back from Bristol, where my uh, lad got... Uh, his uh, graduation for his degree in law so uh, congratulations kieran top, top effort mate very proud of you 
So that's, uh, there's no sounds of trains in the background, you've got to know. So without further ado, here's the interview. Well, hello and welcome to the interview section of the Yorkshire Gamer podcast. And after the chaos of the catch-up episode with three guests, I'm back to my normal format. And today's guest is no stranger to the big game. With over 40 years of pushing lead under his belt, he was inspired by the sadly recently departed Christopher Duffy and David Chandler to embark on a lifelong Napoleonic journey. Like many of my guests, the War Games Holiday Centre has been a huge influence on his style of gaming, leading him to form his own big battalions group to go big himself a couple of times a year. Just released a book with Helion on recreating the biggest battle of the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, for those who don't know, that's Leipzig. And with the scenarios using hundreds of battle battalions and squadrons, it's definitely not for the faint-hearted. Well... That's exactly what the show is all about. So let's speak to the latest guest on the Yorkshire podcast. Let's give a re- big warm welcome to Rohan Saravanamutu. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, brilliant. And pronunciation okay? Yes. Excellent. For a, for a Yorkshireman, um, mo- many people say that the English is my second language. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm happy to get any name right, to be honest. Have you ever been on a podcast before, Rohan? No, it's my first time. Oh, brilliant. Well, welcome. Uh, we, we've had quite a few uh, new people uh, to podcasting uh, during the course of the shows. And I think you've listened to a few, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Enjoyed those. Good. good. Well, it, it's your turn now. And uh, as you probably know, um, we like to put everybody under a little bit of pressure at the start. Um, and that is to uh, summarise their wargaming um, history in four minutes. Uh, have you done a bit of prep? Yeah, I've got some notes for oh, by myself. <laughs> yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure which way is best so far. Some people who've made no, mo- no notes have done it really well. Others have oh. absolutely destroyed it and messed it up. Um, and then same with some people have made too many notes. So let's see how you get on, mate. All right. Um, I'll press the button now and off you go. Okay. All right. Well, like many people, it started as a a young child playing the toy soldiers. And then uh, as I've got a bit older, progressed to the old Airfix models, the uh, 20 mil, World War II, Napoleonic and American War of Independence, which I like the uniforms. And then eventually, as a young teenager, found a copy of the Airfix rules, which I've written by Bruce Quarry and had a go at proper wargaming but on my bedroom floor with my younger brother um and then i sort of drifted away from that uh when i went to university i joined the war games club there the university of kent uh but that was mainly board gaming so very little figure gaming so i did that for a few years there and then had a break um and then in my early 20s or mid 20s i moved to birmingham uh, for work, and I joined the Birmingham War Games Society, and they were in the 1980s a big thriving club, over 30 members, and got introduced to different ranges of war gaming, different periods. Uh, but it was mainly the Napoleonic period that attracted me, and I started collecting 25 mil Napoleonics there. 
And it was with that club that uh, I was introduced to the War Games Holiday Centre, which at that time was up in Scarborough, run by Peter Gilder. And uh, yeah, the first sight of that table blew my mind away. So uh, this is what I want to do. Um, so that was uh, smitten by that. Um, and then uh, in later years, I moved down to London by, when I was 28. And um, I still kept in touch with the Birmingham Club and going with them. Um, also joined a group who used to do Greek spiel um, in Bill Leeson's cottage. Bill was the guy who translated the Ricevich rules into English oh, yeah. and published them. I did a bit of that with him. Um, I'd, and then with a conversation with a friend, Jeff Isles, we decided that there was a gap in that the south of England could do with a equivalent of the War Games Holiday Centre. So we think we would try and emulate that and set up the big battalions. Um, so it's a similar sort of thing, but on a slightly smaller scale, we're doing one-day games. We had to hire a room and for the day, and it was a huge logistical challenge to get all the kit there, uh, terrain, figures, boards, get it set up before people arrived, run the game and then pack it all up again. Um, but yeah, we put on some big historical games, all, all Napoleonic uh, games there. And then a little while later, I moved house and acquired a big garage and uh, war games room where I could put up a big table there. So I ran games there for a bit. Um, but we, we stopped doing the big battalions format, which was sort of semi-commercial. Um, and I was from that point, I just held, held games for friends um, by invitation rather than advertising. And then I, when I, about five years ago, I retired from my job and I did a, an MA in the history of war at King's College, London. And uh, while there, I did the module on conflict simulation, which is basically war games design. Uh, run by Professor Phil Sabin. And the task there was to design a board game based on a battle or historical campaign. And then through that, I got involved in the, an annual conference which uh, for professional war gamers from all over the world. I help, was helping with the admin, and, but I got to go to the conference. And uh, there I took part in some mega games. The first day of the conference is usually a mega game. And then the later two days were different aspects of professional wargaming. So it's mainly people from the Ministry of Defence, the Army, academics, and a few hobbyists. Uh, so that was very interesting. Um, recently, I've, I suppose with COVID, my gaming at home got shut down. But I've been gaming with friends. And um, there's recently, a new historical society, the Newbury Historical Study Association, I've been putting on games in Newbury, so I've been going to a few of those. So that's my the bulk of my wargaming history to date. No worries, the um, the timer didn't work, so you got extra. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is brilliant. But we'll uh, we'll explore explore many of those things that you've just talked about in a little bit more detail uh, as we go through the show. Um, and the first thing that um, jumps out there for me was your mention early on of the uh, of the Bruce Quarry Napoleonic rules um 
that yeah. a must for, a must for many a young lad back in those days. Um, what are your memories of the rules now, looking back on them? Well, I think looking back, uh, I thought they were they're overly complicated. I remember there there were rules for cutting away dead horses from your horse batteries if shot on <laughs> shot at it. So it was. Um, pretty complex set of rules but you know they they worked and it was the first set of rules i attempted to use so yeah it got me gaming and did that um i mean one of the the big things um about the quarry rules is the is the national characteristics and those huge big tables with all the different yeah. factors for how how has that influenced your game because it's, it's been a big influence to me how has that influenced your gaming going forward have you left that behind or is it still something you like to see um I suppose the national characteristics they were they were always pretty controversial, but um, <laughs> they I don't know they of course it's a bit arbitrary, but they have a certain gave a certain flavour. I mean, I, at the moment I tend to use the in the grand manner rules primarily, and uh, they have not not similar, but they have their own sort of national characteristics. So. All the armies are slightly different. Uh, the capabilities are slightly different between different armies, which I think is pretty realistic because they did have different doctrines, different training, different qualities of weapons. So I think there is a legitimate place for having national characteristics of armies. It's not purely jingoism. Um, although there's an element of that. They, I think in Bruce Quarry's rules, the, the British were always a bit superhuman. <laughs> the Austrians a bit cowardly. <laughs> yeah. Plus, plus one for all Yorkshire regiments. It's it all depends on it all depends yeah. on where, where you come from, doesn't it? And, and yeah. what your your bias is, because I've had many stories on this podcast about Peter Gilder being slightly in favour of the French. Unless he, unless he was playing the British in the Peninsula, and then he would be in favour yeah. of the British. So um, I think it's something that many people um, not suffer from, but you know they they like to see their nation pushed forward a little bit. So I can see where yeah. that's coming from. Um, but I I think they give a nice um, flavour. A lot of modern rules, everything seems to be quite bland and. You know, all the an infantry battalion is an infantry battalion, regardless mm. of where it comes from. Um, and do you do you like those little nuances between different nations to give that flavour? Yeah, I do. I think it's because uh, I think it feels historical, and it can lead to an interesting game where you haven't got exactly equal or very similar forces on each side. Mm. Um, so it gives quite a lot of variation. Yeah, for instance, at the moment I've been researching the Russians in recent recent years, and mm. um, in some rules, their for example, their musketry is downgraded, but I think that is legitimate. So there are historical reasons why that's the case in terms of their training, ammunition problems, poor quality or multiple types of musket in the same regiment, and their doctrine. So which was to go in with the bayonet, not stand and have musketry duels. Yeah. So I think that, I think all of these differences are you know, perfectly right to be there. Yeah, I, and I, yeah, I, that's one, one thing that I, I remember reading was the different calibres of um, musket within a, in a unit, which yeah. um, must have caused horrendous supply issues. Um, yeah. or But maybe they just didn't bother <laughs> and said, right, charge. 
uh, no firing. Uh, well, yeah. that's that's great. That's that's good to hear. I, I I always like to get people's opinions on that. Uh, so that's really good. Uh, you mentioned a, a setup of, at home. Have you still got that? I've still got the garage. Um, so I tend to put my garage in, there, in my car in there in the winter, but um, pack the table away. But uh, yeah, I've effectively closed it down for COVID and I haven't got into the habit of putting it back up again. So <laughs> I will do in the spring. So yeah, when, when, when your car's not in there, what does it look like? Well, it's uh, I can put up a table that's, I think it's 24 feet by 12 feet. So wow. pretty big table with a, some gaps in between to walk around. It's a bit cramped, but uh, yeah, so can put, I can put up games there for up to some five people aside so fairly fairly big games yeah so so let's run the big battalions games there for a bit but uh and then just had it as informal games amongst friends but so yeah it's a, a luxury to have that it's uh, no, it so- sounds like a great setup and uh something i think most of us would love to have um mm. and have you uh, have you been involved in the club scene? I, I, you mentioned being in the Birmingham club and uh, and still been in contact with them. Are you? Have you been a club gamer, or does the size of games you tend to play? Uh, not, tend- not really. I mean, it's um, since moving down to London many years ago. I've tended to just games either with the big battalions or just groups of friends. Yeah. So I haven't belonged to a regular club. I think the hobby is probably bigger than people realise. They sort of look around the number of clubs and the people in clubs. But I think there's quite a lot of us who game just amongst groups of friends. So occasional have occasional trips to the War Games Holiday Centre and uh, there's this new place at Newbury I've been going to, which is running. It's a partly historical uh, historical setup. So there's a talk before the games. And then a game afterwards, and just gaming with in mates' houses. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a a very large amount of people who do that. Um, my last uh, guest to do with you know a, a single episode, Chris Flowers. I don't know if you know Chris. Um, no. Yeah, he's he's very much the same. Um, you know, he's got a setup at home. He has people to come round, and with that, you don't particularly need a club. Um, yeah. And I think I think there's lots of uh, lots and lots of those little silos around the country um, who get their gaming fix from from friends um, around at houses rather than needing to go to a club. Yeah. So where so whereabouts in the UK are you at the um, base at the moment? Yeah, I live in Barnet, which is mm. just well north end of north edge of London. So you know you're not far away from well, Basingstoke's the other way around, isn't it? The where the Hells yeah. Center is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, you're closer than I am. For it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. So, um, did you ever get involved in putting games on its shows? Did you ever get into that scene at all? Well, yes. I mean, when me and Jeff Isles first started the Big Battalions, we used to put on some demonstration games at shows, and that was uh, a means to recruit people to come to our battalion games yeah. so we tended to we tended to go to uh well we went to salute a few years running uh we put on a game i think once at the birmingham war games show middle and military it was a big show they used to run in the middle yeah, and um we might have put on a game i think we put on a game at selwig for a couple of years running so yeah we put on some demo 
demo games, some showcasing the sort of stuff we did, um, obviously on a smaller scale to to do for a show. Um, in fact, I think the very first one we did at uh, Salute, we won a prize for best participation game or or one of the prizes, perhaps best or second best, I can't remember. But, uh, yeah, it's nice. It was nice to do that, and uh, it's, um, yeah, it was creating a different skill, I suppose, of liaising with the public and trying to yeah. run a game at the same time. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a, it's definitely a, a technique. Um, yeah. We've we've talked about it a few times of of keeping people who are watching interested as well as keeping the 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 game progressing and uh it's a bit like being a magician isn't it really <laughs> distracting the audience while pulling the rabbit out of the hat at the yeah. same time so. yeah because you want to talk to the public but i yeah. don't want to just see a static display they want to see something happening as well yeah so. exactly exactly yeah. um we're going to spend most of the uh of the episode uh talking about napoleonics um so we'll just set that aside for a second is there is there anything else in uh wargaming that uh period scales etc that you that you are into apart from napoleonics well i suppose i i dabble in other periods uh i mean i apart from figure gaming i do a bit of board gaming yeah and in board gaming it could be any period um i see you've got kingmaker on your back shelf there which is uh, <laughs> classic classic which is uh yeah, a game I've got and still once in a while get that out. Uh, still enjoy that. Yeah. Um, Memoir forty four for Second World War stuff. Oh, yes. yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and some I guess non also non war gaming board games uh, quite enjoy. In terms of other periods, uh, I've dabbled in American Civil War, um, ancients. Generally joining in. I don't have collections of my own, but joining other people's games. Yeah. Um, medieval i mean if i was going to start collecting another period it would probably be the medieval period maybe all yeah. wars of the roses sort of late medieval which uh it's an interesting period historically and very colorful on the tabletop yeah well if you've seen my italian war stuff you'll know that um there's plenty of color in, uh, the, in, in that late, oh, yeah. late, late medieval early renaissance period it's a big uh it's a big favorite of mine as well uh i yeah. have to say well it's good to it's good to see you do a few board games it's something that we've not really talked about on the podcast uh before mm. um and did you get have you played like the old spi games where the hex battles, which I found those quite complicated, and I haven't, I haven't done well one for a long time. Yeah, well, look, I suppose I used to. Um, yeah, when I was the days in the eighties, sort of I was at university, late seventies, eighties. But that's when I suppose SPI hex games were in their zenith, and mm. that's what was available. And yeah. yeah, I used to do, but more of that sort of gaming then. But yeah, it's. I think it's the hobby's moved on since then. It's apart from sometimes it's the, the rules being quite uh, complex, but also quite fiddly. Mm. Trying to move little counters on hexes, uh, and some of the bigger games were quite ridiculous. Where you've got uh, the Eastern games trying to cover the Eastern Front with hundreds and hundreds of counters. Um, one of my <laughs> one of my one of my friends Ian was quite big into them, and and. Yeah. 
he 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 managed to persuade us to look at the map, but never actually play the game. Um, right. <laughs> the maps were so big; it was effectively you didn't need to buy any wallpaper because you just put these maps <laughs> up on the wall. They were oh. so big. And I think it's is it the war in North Africa that's supposed to, the SPI game is supposed to be the biggest ever, um, and it, it sells for thousands now. If you can really, find oh. it. yeah. I wasn't aware of that. I mean, I've, I've yeah. heard of the Eastern Front ones being massive, yeah. but um, not the North African ones. No. Well, yeah, I've not seen those. No. Yeah, but, um, uh, it's got quite a reputation. Probably, yeah. I think some of those are just unplayable. But I guess if you you can, people who are into the detail, you can get lost and submerge in the detail, which some people like. Uh, I think in practice they're unplayable, and uh, yeah, and I suppose the hobby moved on to having area movement rather than fiddly hexes, which yeah. is much easier to deal so, with. Um, I'm looking behind me because there's a game I'm going to ask you about. I need to oh. uh, it was a, I can't find, I can't see it at the moment. It's and it's massive oh. as well. Um, Empires at Arms. It was a Napoleonic board game. Oh, that, yes, I've got that. It's one of my favorite games. Oh, yes, um, we, we I, enjoy that. I mean, it's, I've played some scenarios with a friend, but uh, the whole campaign, I've tried to do solitaire a couple of times, mm. and it's it's very absorbing doing it solitaire. Yeah, trying to get about seven people together to commit that level of time to it, <laughs> yeah, is pretty impractical. But uh, I thought, yeah, one day perhaps I'll achieve that. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's a, it's definitely a goal to we we used to play it quite a lot when we were students and, and quite clearly we should have been studying i appreciate <laughs> that uh, <laughs> uh, but we've all done all right in life so uh, maybe those games yeah. helped us a little bit in other ways <laughs> yeah it's, it's i think the complexity dealing with complexity is it's good trading for other things actually it's uh... yeah I, i've had um i've had a few guests on um where we've talked about um the sort of the unseen side benefits of, of wargaming and one of them simon hall is an extremely successful businessman and you know the the negotiating skills the strategy skills the tactic yeah. skills decision making they're all really useful tools to have in, in a business world yeah and i think i mean in my job i worked in finance as, as an accountant and having to explain some complex stuff to people at meetings um if you can explain the rules of empire and arms to people in 15 <laughs> minutes yeah. then you could explain <laughs> high finance <laughs> to people around the table you know? yeah. yeah yeah very similar very similar um so you also mentioned um that uh, when you'd retired from your job you were uh, you did a bit of military history or military strategy uh, studying so uh, not something we've had before so uh, just tell us a little bit about that yeah so um yeah so after retiring i signed up to do an ma in the history of war at king's college london which has a big war studies department and they have links with the military to the same people who go around and teach uh, the ministry uh, well the army at shrivenham at the staff college so that was mainly historical but one of the modules i did was conflict simulation which uh, run by professor phil saban who's known in he, I think, was a member of the Society of Ancients, so he's known in these ancient wargaming 
fraternity. Um, so he ran this module, and um, it was partly learning about the history of wargaming and the techniques. But instead of writing, he had to write some essays, but instead of writing a dissertation, what you had to do is produce, design and produce a board game based on a historical battle or campaign. Mm. So some of what we were learning, very practical stuff, how to use computer graphics. And although it's a board game, not not a computer game, Mm. you'd be using some computer graphics to design the pieces and the board. Um, So you learned some skills there. And then you had to bring it to the class, play test it, critique each other's games. So I've always fancied designing a game. So Mm. that was one of the reasons I chose that particular university because they ran this course there. Uh, Yeah, so that was good fun and learnt learnt quite a lot there. Which Uh, game did you do for your dissertation or for your project? Yeah, it was the the Battle of Borodino. Oh, right, Uh, okay. Yeah, which is something I had an interest in. Um, Mm. You mentioned Christopher Duffy. I first Mm. got into the Napoleonic period by reading Christopher Duffy's book on Borodino when I was about 12. Mm. And um, and then later years, I, I, I think about 20 years ago, I visited uh, Borodino, went on a battlefield tour. And uh, Borodino was one of the battlefields we visited. Mm. In fact, we had two days there, one to explore the battlefield and one day to watch uh, the big reenactment there, which oh, the right, Russians do every year. Mm. Fascinating battle. And uh, yeah, so I've produced the board game. And maybe one day I'll perhaps try and get around trying to publish that, but it's quite a crowded yeah. marketplace. Yeah, there's lots of games out there, isn't there, um, in yeah. the board game market. Um, so it's um, usual at this time um, of the uh, of the podcast that we come round to the old Venn diagram of wargaming. And um, we we I've broken the hobby down into wargamer, painter, collector, and historian and um we've we've had a bit of all of those as we've gone along um but how do you see those different parts fit together for for your hobby well perhaps uh i don't do very much painting i Mm. i did when i was younger i did a bit of painting but i was never very good at it and uh well my eyesight's not that great these days to be able to do it so um i think painting would be a very small circle on the venn diagram um collecting i mean i do have quite a big collection but it's i wouldn't call myself a collector for the sake of it Mm. Uh, i I buy stuff that i want to use so it's um it's not just to stick on a shelf and collect it's what i've got i like to use so Mm. collecting on its own would be a small bit on the venn diagram um the two big bits you know playing games and the history so mm. I think both of those are two big uh, draws, and they, they feed off each other. So my interest in history drives uh, a desire to, to war game particular battles, mm. and you know, and the war games stimulates a curiosity about history. So mm. they feed off each other. So when yeah. you when you come to get figures these days if you still do um are you buying them pre-painted or are you having people paint them for you uh well i tend to buy well when i have bought uh i tend to buy them secondhand pre-painted and then to get the bulk of them that way and then to fill in the odd gaps particular regiments i might want 
on a, on the odd occasion, I've had commissioned a particular regiment to be painted for me. Yeah, um, that's quite expensive. So <laughs> limit that to uh, some particular nice units. Ones. <laughs> yeah, and do, ones that do are hard you to get hold of? Yeah, do you do you then base them all yourself? So you've got like a consistent style. Well, I, I tend to be uh, tends to be based. Uh, for the rule set that I use in the grand manner, yeah. Um, yeah. which when the other rule sets, it doesn't necessarily matter how they're based. You can still use other sets of rules with them yeah. for many rules. Yeah. It's uh, prefer them to be based in that fashion. And we're just coming to the end of the first section now, and uh, just like to, uh, do you do much social media at all, Rohan? Are you, you know, Facebook, Twitter, that sort of thing? Uh, not a lot. I mean, I, I am... So registered with Facebook, but I don't tend to post stuff. Um, I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to social media. <laughs> and, uh, um, so, uh, yeah, and also a bit reticent of you know, boring people with photographs of my dinner and. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the tw- the, yeah, the war, the war games section tends to be boring people with pictures of toy soldiers, which doesn't uh, really bore, yeah. doesn't really bore us. So it's it's not too yeah. bad. In fact, uh, we're going to talk about the war games holiday centre in the next section. Um, but um, you mentioned Peter Gilder. Did you go in the next um, incarnation with Jerry Elliott um, and Mike Ingham? Yes, I mean, I, so the first time I went up there was. Um... Peter Gilder was still running it, but I think yeah. it was towards the end, the end of his career running it. And uh, yeah, I carried on going there under Jerry Elliott mm. um, and Mike Ingham, and also in Basingstoke with Mark Freeth. With, with Mark, brilliant. Yeah. Well, I've had I've had Mark on the podcast, and I've had uh, Jerry on the podcast. Um, yeah. And um, Jerry, uh, I can't believe I persuaded him, but uh, it's fantastic to have had him on. And uh, he actually posted his first post on Facebook yesterday. On, on I've oh. got a I've got a Yorkshire gamer, uh, big war games group, and and he posted a picture on there yesterday. So uh, I'm slowly oh. I'm slowly dragging our generation of gamers onto the internet. <laughs> so you're most welcome to join the group, Rohan, and post pictures of you. Right, thanks. I'll, I'll try and do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's brilliant. That's a good point to uh, take a little break here for the audience. And uh, we'll be back in a few minutes, ladies and gentlemen, for uh, our second section when we're going to talk about big games. Well, as you all know, regular listeners, uh, the second part of uh, this podcast is is all about big games. And the first question I always ask to my guests when they come on um, to see what their opinion is: What does a big game mean to you, Rohan? When you say when you hear that word "big game," what are you thinking of? Uh, well, I'm thinking big to me is between four players aside and twelve players aside. As opposed to mega games, I mean, I have taken part in a couple of a few mega games where you've got maybe a hundred players, where they tend to be political, military games, quite a lot of role playing, which are. Uh, int- I mean, it's not something I would do often, but it's very mm. interesting to be involved in that uh, from time to time. It's uh, in fact, when I was at conferences at uh, King's College, are they? ran a consim conference once a year for 
professional war games from around the world. So the first day that was a mega game. And um, that one year we had um, Ben Wallace, the Ministry of Defence, turned oh, up right, to yeah. come and have a look. So uh, he had a chat with people on our table. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's quite high profile, but um, but that's that's a quite separate from what I do as a hobby. I think so. Mm-hmm. A big game for me in terms of figure games, yeah, sort of eight to twelve people. Mm-hmm. Um, a small game would be yeah you know, one or two players aside. Yeah, and so um, I think the size of the game is more to do with the number of people than the the scale of the table or the, the figures. So I would even if you're using a small scale of figures if you've got 10 people i'd still class that as a big game yeah and what's the what's the appeal of a big game for you as opposed to um you know doing a skirmish game or a board game what is it that drags you to the bigger table well i think there's several things uh i think i've got my interest in history is a desire to refight a historical battle and by definition they tend to be big battles big games so to uh to do the game justice you need to do it on a big scale so there's that historical element i i enjoy the social element as well so if you're Mm. having a game with you know eight or 12 people it's uh it's a social event it's um which is different from just one person aside so it's it's fun that way and i think it's uh with a big game, certainly you feel perhaps it's more e- emotional involved. You feel you're, you've been in a battle <laughs> when, you've, <laughs> when you've played all day with that number of people. Um, yeah. It tends to be a bit more, can be a bit more pressured because yeah. you're, and so you, you've got to play at a certain speed not to slow the game down. Mm. You're under sort of pressure not to let the side down by messing up your area and exposing your your neighbor's flank um and the the team element so with a big game there's um there's generally i say like a a council of war to begin with so you Mm. as a team you come up with a strategy your plan what you're going to do allocating the troops so there's there's an extra element there which you don't get in a small game that's uh that um team planning and that Mm. level of strategy and the dynamics between players. So you don't need artificial rules to create chaos. Um, <laughs> the players will create enough chaos on their own. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's something I was talking to with my friend Richard Harris, who runs uh, Legendary War Games up near me, um, which is a war games holiday centre style thing. And oh, one yes. of the criti- one of the criticisms that. Uh, he brought up that many people put to uh, in the grand manner is that lack of a command and control system. And and Richard was saying, and it's something I've not thought of before, but it's a very true answer to exactly what you said there, Rohan. It's you, you've got your command and control issues because Ken is speaking to Rohan. Rohan's doing his thing, and Ken's doing his thing, and they might not necessarily gel together. And then Dave over in the corner is doing something else, and and Pete over yeah. there. So that that's where your command and control issues come in. Yeah, the personalities play a part in that, uh, yeah. which is quite realistic. Yeah. yeah. So are you the are you the solid defense player do you like to play russians and get behind a big redoubt or are you you know are you french cavalry 
charging over the planes? What's your, what's your favourite? Well, uh, what would you say your style was? <laughs> well, I like to think of myself as the dashing cavalry officer. Do but, you? Uh, <laughs> but I'm probably more often hiding under the table. <laughs> so yeah. so you, you enjoy being um, part of a part of a jigsaw, if you like, rather than focusing one-on-one in a smaller game that's more like a game of chess. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more of an, of an event. Um, well, yeah, look, I'm happy to do both, but uh, the bigger game gives you that extra dimension. Yeah, well, you, you're preaching to the converted here, young man. So, <laughs> um, now, you've mentioned earlier on in the in the first part and in your, in your four minutes about going up to the War Games Holiday Centre. I think you said the first time was with the Birmingham Club. Um, so yeah. where, where, roughly when was that? You say Peter was still in charge up there? Oh, um, that would be in the, I suppose, about around about 1985, I suppose, around about that sort of time. Um, so yeah, so it's the tail end of Peter Gilder running it. Mm. Um, he was, I think, he was, he was still well. I, I mean, he got ill later on, but um, yeah. he was. I think he was beginning to lose interest in it because he was busy um, producing figures as a sideline. I think the connoisseur range of figures or elite. So yeah, he would be not there all. He'd be disappearing right to his shed to cast a few figures and <laughs> nipping back in. Uh, but yeah, going. nice chap, and uh, yeah, yeah. it's a good introduction to yeah. that sort of I, scale. I do this with everyone who's been. What was um, your memory of that first time that you saw that room with all the figures laid out on the table? Well, I think even before the figures, just walking into that room, <laughs> and, uh, before the figures are on the table, it's just breathtaking, the scale of it. Mm. Beautiful terrain as well. And then as the game progresses to see all the figures on the table, it's up, yeah, it's just breathtaking. So it's, and, and that and that's clearly had an effect on you going forwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I thought, well, you know, at the time I thought wonder it wouldn't be wonderful to have something like this, but um I don't I mean I never dreamt that I would get it, but I, I did eventually get something on a smaller scale. Not of that scale, but you know, something similar. So yeah, immensely satisfying to do that. And what, what's your kind of favourite memories of, of being up at the Holiday Centre? I think it was the campaign week. So it was more under when it, Mike Ingham uh, was running it. He used to run mm. campaign weeks. And uh, that was, again, there was another dimension. So it was a big game, but also running a campaign. So we might do the 1813 campaign, for instance, mm. or a Peninsula War campaign, where the, the outcome of a battle well, you would fight a battle and obviously the casualties would carry forward to the next game. Mm. And you do a bit of map movement in between games. So during the week, you might play three or four battles with a map movement in between. And when you're playing a campaign, your style of play changes quite a bit. You're much more cautious, particularly with cavalry, conscious of not using up your cavalry and your best troops. Yeah. And uh, gives you a more realistic feel were more historical feels. You understand yeah, why Napoleon wouldn't commit the guard at the beginning of every battle. Yeah, so in, the first, in the first skirmish, send the guard yeah, in. It's got to last all week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, and that led you on to uh, do a little bit yourself with the with the big battalions group. Um, how long did it take to get that together to have enough troops to to do something big? Um, I mean, we thought that collecting the troops together would be difficult. 
but it took mm. a while. But actually, that wasn't the hardest part. Managed to pick up some collections secondhand. Um, Ian Hines was just starting out in his business where he oh, yes, he yep. trades figures. And um, I think I was one of his first customers buying a, a, a small Prussian army, well, quite a sizable Prussian well, army <laughs> through him. So that wasn't a huge, buying the figures was not a huge problem. They, yeah, there, were, there were quite a few sec, secondhand mm-hmm. armies for sale. But the biggest problem is actually trying to find a venue um, I mean, church halls tend to get used at the weekends. Um, a lot of rooms have pillars in them. So to yeah. getting, actually to get a space where you can put a big table up with not, without having pillars in the way is difficult. Who'd, who'd, have, who'd have thought holding the roof up was important? <laughs> <laughs> and then you want a venue that's got tables as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that it took us quite a while to find a venue. Eventually found a a community centre in London, and then we used that for a bit in Crouch End, and later on found a community centre in Hitchin. But that's actually trying to find a venue is the hardest part. Mm-hmm. And then and then building up a, a base of people, a clientele who come uh, advertising and uh, going to de- put on demonstration games to attract interest. Um, but it took a while to build up, but eventually yeah. uh, we got there and uh, we ran for several years doing that. So it was successful. We never made any money out of it. I mean, we charged people to come along and play because we had to hire the hall. But um, yeah, it sort of financed it itself in terms of cost of terrain. I know it's, it's a good excuse to buy lots of figures as well. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Absolutely perfect. Um, yeah. And I, I, one of the things that I, I've read, um, I think it was in your bio, um, was that you really enjoy putting the scenarios together. Um, and we're going to talk about, there's a lot of that in the Leipzig book that we're going to talk mm. about later on. Um, but in general, at that time, were you putting the scenarios together for the Big Battalions group? Well, we, I was doing it in partnership with uh, uh, Jeff Isles. So we would mm. take it in turns to design the scenario. Mm. Yeah, which was an enjoyable enjoyable part of it. So basically reading up the history books, um, producing the army list, trying to create a battle map, which um, is not that easy. So you look at a, a map of a, some of the old maps of battles, um, it's not that easy to read the terrain. Um, but yeah, you've got to convert that into a tabletop uh, map. Mm. Uh, so that was a challenge. But... Um, mm. Yeah, it's all enjoyable. And then scaling it down to be a playable game within the set time. So if you've got our games tend to be one day games, they would scale it to fit one day with X number of players. So yeah. I think we find that some people tend to perhaps overfill the table sometimes. So if they've got a lot of figures, say, so well, let's put them all on the table. I mean, some people like wall to wall figures. And to have just be able to command masses of troops, but mm. I think if you get a better game if you've got room to manoeuvre, yeah. and to have a result at the end of the day, it's a bit more satisfying to and a more interesting game. I think mm. sometimes, yeah, rather than have wall to wall figures. Yeah, it is. A, it is a temptation for many, isn't it? To, oh, I've got a, I've got a foot there that hasn't got any figures in. Let's. Um... <laughs> chuck a division in <laughs> and uh, fill it up yeah and also this 
false comforts of having your flank protected by the edge of the table. Yeah, the flat earth um, society, as we call them. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there was one game I had uh, earlier with the big battalions. We had a, I think we had about a 21-foot table. And then this chap was looking very complacent so that he was he on his left flank. He looked very secure. He got the edge of the table. So it was a friend of mine, actually. So I, I stitched him up. I put another table on, <laughs> another board on the edge of the tables. <laughs> you should have seen his face drop. And uh, so the opponent was able to outflank him. <laughs> oh, dear. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, many, many games. Uh, I don't know if you keep up with um, kind of modern war gaming and different styles. Uh, the bigger game... Uh, dropped out of fashion a little bit um what do you think is a is is the barriers and the reasons that newer players uh are not converting to the bigger game um well i, I, mean, I don't know i mean i'm not um i guess i'm not close to the different all areas of the hobby but uh oh. i think it's a question of organization um mm. Imagine, I mean, putting on a big game takes quite a bit of organisation. Um, if you're doing it as an individual, it's quite a lot of work for one person. If you're doing it as a club, it requires quite a lot of coordination. Maybe one person to sort out the scenario, but you might need half a dozen people to bring figures along. Mm -hmm. So, and if one person doesn't turn up, that can create a problem. So, there are it's not there are some impediments, but I think the um i think the, the the upside is it's worth it's worth the effort and i suppose maybe some people who are perhaps used to competition gaming where it's one on one perhaps they see that as serious gaming and mm. worthy of trying to be the best competition gamer that's where their ambitions lie but um yeah different styles of different people Mm, exactly, exactly. And um, if you had some advice for somebody who maybe hadn't done a big game before, what would that be? Um, I would keep keep the scale down so that players can manage the size of forces. So, if, for example, in a in a one to one game, you might find that a player can handle quite easily, say, twelve units, mm. being sort of say. 10 battalions plus a couple of regiments of cavalry, maybe one or two batteries. So, but if you're playing a big game because of the interaction, you, you for the same period of time, you probably want to scale that down to say eight battalions per player plus cavalry and guns. So, work out how many on average, how many units people are going to have each and keep it, keep that number down um, so that. Uh, because there will be in a big game, it'll it will by the nature of it, it will progress more slowly than a one-to-one -one game, mm. because there'll be it moves at the pace of the the slowest area. Player, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, that's uh, lovely to hear, and a nice little big game chat. Always great to get 15, 20 minutes on a big game, and we might get some more in the final section as well, I think. Um, so, yeah. uh, we'll just take another quick break there, and uh, we'll be back in a second for our features section. Yeah. 
Hello everyone, welcome back. And uh, this is normally called the quiz section, but I've changed it to the features section because it just keeps growing and growing. Uh, but the first thing we're going to do is the Yorkshire Gamer Quiz. And uh, we always have to stick our disclaimer in that this is how Yorkshire Gamer you are. It's not how right or wrong you are. It's how Yorkshire Gamer you are. Um, so, uh, Rohan, it's just uh, a yes or no or one answer or the other. And uh, there are a number of regionally biased questions in it, which... Uh, clearly biased um, okay you know you know what i'm i'm in yorkshire and i don't care <laughs> so the first question um go big or go home well go big of course of course of course yeah. um you don't do much painting but contrast paints do you think they're great or a gimmick oh, uh i wouldn't know that's a problem there's probably yeah i'd say they're worth having yeah Go for them. Worth yeah. No worries. Another, unfortunately, another painting-based question, but yeah. uh, and regionally biased at the same time. Uh, so, uh, paintbrushes, Windsor and Newton, or Yorkshire-made pro art? Well, I wouldn't know. So, I'll to win a few brownie points. I'll say <laughs> Yorkshire pro art. <laughs> good lad. Good lad. <laughs> um, right. Uh, Ninety-six figures. Is that an army or a pike block? A pike block. <laughs> Quite clearly. And a small pike block at that as well. Um, a six by four table, is that a big game or a small game? Uh, it depends on the, the scale of the figures, but it's probably a small game. Excellent. Excellent. Nice little caveat there. I like that. Mm. Um, question six uh, Points based army or an historical order of battle? A historical order of battle. Excellent. Oh. And um, another painting question, I'm afraid. If you painted, would you use a wet palette or an old bit of MDF to mix your paint? Uh, old bit of MDF. Excellent. Excellent. Still nobody's explained what these, what these wet palettes do. We'll get there in the end. Yeah. Uh, do you like um, undercoated figures, black or white? Uh, I used to undercoat mine with black. Excellent. As, as all the best painters do. Oh. <laughs> um, so um, you are in a cafe or somebody's offering you a drink. Do you have Yorkshire tea or dirty mucky coffee? Oh, this is a contentious question here. Um, I mean, you're talking to someone who's bored in salon. Ah, no. Oh, I'm... so that's pro property. So now I've spent many a happy weekend walking in the foothills of the Yorkshire Himalayas. Yes. But I've never come across a tea plantation. <laughs> it's, it's, it's near Dewsbury. It's near... <laughs> <laughs> Yorkshire tea. I'm not having it, I'll tell you. No. I'll have a Tetley's. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, war games units. Um, do you like the figures tightly packed or socially distanced? Uh, tightly packed. Right, excellent, excellent. Doing very well so far. Um, question 11, we're on the back end now. If you've got a choice, would you do a two-hour club game or a weekend monster game? Oh, a weekend monster, yeah. Excellent. Now, we're. Uh, this is uh, uh, Nick Skinner's uh, question, this is, and um, it's avocado. Is it just posh, mushy peas? <laughs> No, no, no. Nothing wrong with avocado. I see. I, I hate to say this, Rohan, but you've you've increased the 
avocado stereotype here because we we kind of got an avocado <laughs> we oh my this is this is episode 34 and my avocado line is just south of birmingham everyone north oh, of birmingham right every time. <laughs> so you've not let me down you've not let me down and uh, this question no pressure on this question but everyone has answered this question the same way so no pressure and that's round dice spherical dice um would you allow them or ban them on your table i'd ban them no, yes 100 <laughs> percent um if you were going down the fish and chip shop the chippy as we know it up here would you choose haddock or cod uh haddock 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 mm. that is uh mr marshall from tm terrain that was his question oh. um <laughs> Question 15, old school, do you like a, a good table in a set of rules, like a casualty table, or do you prefer the more modern D6 and you're dead kind of thing? Oh, well, I would probably the, the old school combat results table, but it depends on the situation. I've used both. Yeah, no worries. But you don't mind a big table. You're certainly a grand manor. You haven't got a choice, have you? Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> that's, yeah. Next controversial question, and number 16, 28 mil is king, yes or no? Yes, yes. Yeah, excellent. Um, question 17, unpainted miniatures allowed on the table, yes or no? No, no. No, excellent, no controversy there. Um, now, a uh, big question here. I haven't got my Bradford City top on today, um, but... Uh, if you had to choose between Bradford City or Leeds United, which one would it be? Bradford. <laughs> power, the, the power of persuasion works again. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're on question 19. And this one is the uh, Yorkshire or the other place over the hill question. Oh, well, I have to. My grandmother was from Hull. So, uh, Ooh, they are well. There we go. Yeah, so it's got to be Yorkshire, yeah. So that's what we like to hear. And the final question, uh, Games Workshop, are they the work of the devil? Yes or no? Uh, they're in league with the devil, yes. I think they are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. The devil has all the best tunes. So that is true. That is true. <laughs> and uh, another cracking effort this week from my guest with 82.5%. I gave you half point for the tea question. Um, so you are you are quite a lot Yorkshire gamer. Oh, even though you, thank you. Even though even though you live in Barnet, you you do very well. You do very. I, I didn't oh. knock you any. I didn't knock you any points off for being south of Sheffield. Oh so, right, so, yeah. So get yourself lucky. <laughs> now, part two of the features section is uh, War Games Room One Hundred and One, uh, and George Orwell had his Room of Horror that uh, was turned into a TV show where guests would try and convince the hosts that a pet hate of theirs uh, should be confined to uh, the, the the vault and um, we've had we've had a few over the uh, over the episodes have you managed to come up with something Rohan that's a particularly pet yeah, hate of it's, yours oh, it's um players who don't read the briefings oh yeah so when one. you've when you put a scenario together and you've written a small briefing uh, explaining the situation to players, maybe giving them some intelligence about the enemy, a few clues and a few rules for the day, scenario rules, 
And uh, often when people, particularly perhaps particularly a big game, they come and they get excited and they want to start, get straight into the scrap and they don't read the briefing properly. <laughs> and then they complain afterwards, oh, you didn't tell us about that. So there'll be people sneaking up on the flank. <laughs> and they say, well, you should have read the, read the briefing. You know? <laughs> well, that is, a, that is an awesome one. I like that because... Um... We we did we do a lot of World War One gaming here in, in Mesopotamia, um, oh. uh, and um, we did a game once that I set up, and the Turkish briefing was um, was very clear, and the table was set up in such a way that we've got a small British trench line and a huge open flank, and the Turkish briefing was to try and push round the the British trenches. And they just completely ignored it and went headfirst into the trenches and got machine gunned to death very, very quickly. And they went, oh, that's a rubbish scenario, that. It, didn't, it was never going to work. <laughs> I said, right, just go and sit down, read your briefing and come back. And they went, I came back and went, oh, oh, oh I, I, I should have read the briefing, shouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> important life lesson there for everyone listening. Read the briefing. Read the yeah. briefing. And a lot of effort goes into it, doesn't it, mate? If you're doing yeah, that. so I suppose I learned not to write too much because I know you know, learn that people don't want to sit and read a whole page; uh, they want to just get stuck in. Uh, yeah, so I, I suppose as a designer, you try and keep the briefing as short as possible, but you do sometimes need to put some stuff in there. Yeah, and you you put a lot of work in to get to that point. Yeah, the brief and the briefing actually. You, you've not just done a briefing for a laugh. You've done yeah. a briefing to tell people how the game's going to go. So, yeah. without any shadow of a doubt, that's going in. Um, we can. I need some sound effects of a vault closing behind me. I'll try and find one. Um, no. But yeah, that, that's a, another one. That's in there with the good stuff. Our pale blue rivers and uh, all the other. <laughs> All the other things that have got in there, uh, <laughs> some of them more controversial than others. Um, yeah. We'll just move on to our final part of our features section, which is relatively new. And you probably don't realise this, Rohan, but this is um, inspired by yourself. Oh, um, nice. Because when I when I wrote to you or emailed you uh, a couple of three months ago now um, about coming on the show, because uh, I, I have a huge waiting list. Um, oh. And um, you emailed me back and said, I'd love to. It's the War Games equivalent of Desert Island Discs. Yep. Yeah, is yep. what you said. Um, yeah. So I, a little spark went off in my mind and thought, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea <laughs> um, for a feature. Um, so this will forever be known as Rohan's Desert Island War Game. Uh, <laughs> so you have you have made an impact on the show, young man. Oh, good. We are grateful for it. Very grateful. <laughs> Um, so I don't suppose many people listen to Radio 4 these days, um, but uh, there is a thing on there called Desert Island Discs, and uh, people come on the show and they choose uh, the favourite records, etc. Um, so I thought that would be quite easy to do for a wargaming sense. Yeah. And um, so for, there's three things you can, you, you can take, and the first one is a Desert Island game. And um, any rule set, any period, any scale, any numbers of players – what is your ideal game? Well, I assume that I'd be on my own on a desert island, so I would take Empires and Arms, which is the game you mentioned earlier. Oh, brilliant. Which is a, a big game, uh, 
takes days to play, huge map. Immensely <laughs> and, uh, very absorbing. Yeah. 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 So that's a good choice, actually, um, because it is one of those games that you need to be somewhere where nobody's going to interrupt you uh, to actually get it finished. Uh, yeah. So, so that is a that is a, an excellent choice, an excellent choice. So, um, and of course, on Desert Island uh, discs, everyone gets to take uh, a book in addition to uh, a religious book of their choice. Um, so, which book would be uh, the one that you would take? Yeah, I think it would have to be David Chandler's Campaigns of Napoleon. So classic, classic. Whenever I'm researching a, so I'm looking for my copy now. Oh, oh so it's there. It's there. It's oh, yeah. There. <laughs> when I'm ever researching a battle, that's the first book I'll go to to get an overview of the campaign and a background to the battle. Um, I need to go go to other books later to get more detail, but um, it was such a yeah, such, so well written and uh, and generally reliable source. A very very yeah. good book. Um, mm. we've, it's mentioned a couple of times on the show before, um, and I always ask this question: Have you actually read it from the start to the finish, or like me, do you actually just dip in and go, "I'm doing Vermeero or whatever"? And I, I love that bit. Yeah, I don't think I've started at the beginning and gone to the end. I tend to, if I'm doing a battle on say you know, the 1812 campaign, I'll read that couple of chapters two or three chapters on 1812 mm. and then i might if i'm doing an earlier battle i'll read a couple of chapters the one or two chapters on that period so yeah it tends to tend to dip into it that way yeah i think if you, if you were on a desert island you'd have that time wouldn't you yeah and you and you'd go forward and and then yeah. start and read it all through i think that i think um when I retire, I think that's going to be on my bucket mm. list of things to do. Um, get a nice cottage somewhere in Scotland, lovely view, nice bottle of whiskey, campaigns of Napoleon on the desk, and, yeah. and off, off we go, off we go. I, I like the idea of that. Uh, and then the final one I've put in is um, a war games unit, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that anyone breaks into anyone's house and steals any. This is just a... <laughs> this is just a yeah. Uh, a, a fantasy thing. Um, what war games unit would you take with you um, for any period of history? It doesn't have to yep. belong to you. It could be something that has a special meaning to you, or something you've seen in a magazine or played with at the holiday centre. Yeah, well, it's um, I suppose my favourite unit at the moment is um, a regiment of French cavalry, the Carabiniers à Cheval, which um, is one of the few regiments I had painted for me, uh, beautifully painted by John Gretzer um, and nicely based up. So, yeah, that will be my unit to, to uh, put that, on the that, shelf in my desert island. Is that is that the, um, is that because of the history of the unit or how it looks or how you came it about how it? how it looks. It is looks... it one of those that just goes boom? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and obviously, if you've, I mean, if you've ever seen the film Waterloo, I'm sure you have. Yeah. It's French cavalry charge there. It's one of the regiments featured in the film there. They look fantastic. The, you know, the uniforms, and very Excellent. impressive. Excellent. Well, that's a, that's a fantastic choice and uh, mm. a great one for our, our first uh, Rohan's Desert Island war game. 
<laughs> well, thanks very much for that idea. It's a brilliant one. I'm going to have some fun with oh, that. You're welcome. Over, over coming, coming episodes. Um, I just need that little spark. I'm not very good at coming up with fresh ideas, but when I have a tiny oh. little spark, I'm off. <laughs> And you just can't stop me, which is which is great. So we're going to take another break uh, for our audience, and then we're going to come back in a couple of minutes' time, and we're going to talk about um, the Battle of Leipzig and Rohan's new book uh, around gaming. That. Well, welcome to the big topic section, and today uh, we're going to be talking about, and I know this is an audio podcast, so you can't see this, but I'm just holding uh, the book up to the camera so that my guests can see. I have actually bought a copy. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, didn't get, I didn't get it free, paid for this from my own money. All right. Um, um, this is from Helian Wargames, uh, number eight, Leipzig, the Battle of the Nations, a Wargamer's Guide to the Battle of Leipzig, 1813. And we'll take a, a deep dive into the book over the next um, 40 minutes or so. Um, but the first question, really, before we go into that, and it's something we've skirted around a little bit throughout the whole of the podcast, uh, and that's Napoleonics. What is that big draw for you? You, you clearly it's the period for you um what is it that draws you to it i think it's uh it's a colorful period i like the you know the uniforms but i think probably more importantly it's it's an interesting balance between the different arms between cavalry infantry and artillery they all play an equally important role in a battle and i think in later periods technology tends to dominate Earlier periods, um, it's a bit more brutal. The Napoleonic period, there's quite a lot of skill in getting uh, different well, multi-armed cooperation to, to win a battle. Uh, so those, yeah, I think those are the main reasons. Yeah, it's it's one of those periods, isn't it, where it's a bit of a, a kind of a rock paper scissors deal, um, where you haven't got. Um, one technology that is strips anything else because you go forward in time from from here and the infantry firepower and the artillery firepower becomes so much that your cavalry effectively becomes ineffective yeah um and then there is a because I'm big on the Italian wars, um, that early Renaissance period is a similar period of time because you've got these pipe blocks that will smash through everything but Artillery will smash them. Right. Cavalry, cavalry will smash the artillery and any other infantry. Mm. So that's very much a, a rock paper scissors kind of thing. And yeah. um, is there a particular nation that you are more partial to than the others when you're gaming? I wouldn't say so. Not no, not really. I'm um... quite happy to chuck your your, yeah. your hand in with Russians and Austrians and Brits yeah, and the, Russians and the beats got there. As I was saying earlier, they've got got their some national characteristics, but they've each got their strengths and weaknesses. The French are probably good all round, good all round army. Yeah, um, it's well, I like the Russians as well because they've got a lot of variety. They've got uh, you can have Cossacks, got powerful artillery. Infantry is not so good, but uh, you've got other stuff to compensate. Good cavalry. Interesting, interesting, and um, the history of the the conflict away from the war game inside is that it's something that i think you've said you know during the course of this you enjoy researching the period as well yes um i mean it's 
in a way, it's like a world war. You've got some massive conflicts, all of Europe involved, spilling over into colonies. Um, so there's always something new to learn about it. And when I was doing my MA, I looked at other aspects of the war, I looked into the economics of the war a bit. Mm. And uh, I did my dissertation on the expedition to Falkerin. It's mm. spelt, people might know it as Walcherin, but it's pronounced Falkerin. Um, yeah, that, that's, that second one sounds more like a Yorkshire pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, an amphibious operation, combined arms, navy and army. Yeah, so I've, that's an area I'd like to perhaps come back to at some point. Mm. And there's still archives um, that are opening up in, in Russia, I would imagine, that would have been closed for a while that, you know, maybe um, English-speaking um, historians haven't had a chance to go through as yet. Yeah, I think there's more getting translated more more becoming available now so yeah that's opening up yeah because most accounts i read of say the 1812 campaign have been from the french side so there's a few bits i've read from the russian side but tends to be individual memoirs but Mm. um where you get snippets but yeah there's more coming out from the other side now uh so what was she your first spark of an idea for doing this book then did you wake up one morning in a hot sweat and go, I'm going to do a book on Leipzig, or how did it, how did it start? Well, uh, yeah, I, mean, I suppose I've, if you're going to, I was thinking of writing a series of wargaming guides. Okay. So why did I pick the biggest or the most complex <laughs> battle of all time to that I'm, date? I'm nodding my head, which you can't see at the moment, listeners. But yeah. <laughs> that was that. That was my next question. <laughs> yeah. In the big battalions, we did quite a few of the 1813 battles. We did Dresden, uh, Lutzen, uh, but we never did uh, Leipzig. So I thought I'd like to have a go at wargaming Leipzig. And looking around for a wargaming guide, I couldn't find anything that was particularly helpful. There was one old book from the 1970s, which was co-authored by um, Peter Gilder, supposedly, uh, which is out of print, but I found a copy in the, the British Library. And... I can't remember the name of the, the co-author, but what it is, is it's a good account of the 1813 campaign, but there's only a couple of pages on the, the Battle of Leipzig. And the Wargaming Guide, a bit of it just said that war game rules are available. <laughs> that was pretty much it. Yeah, th- thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. I mean, Peter Gilder's <laughs> contribution was to provide some some photographs and pretty pictures of his collection, yeah. not necessarily related to the battle. So that wasn't of any help. So I thought, well, there's a gap in the market here. So I think I'll, I'll write my own. Mm. So, well, I put on for my group of friends uh, a mini campaign of the battle. Mm. So I did some research and wargamed the campaign. So did most of the battles in my garage which even with a big table wasn't big enough to do the whole battle in one <laughs> go. So, but I found that it was readily broken down into sectors. Yeah. So you can do the, the Western sector around Lindenau. It's a relatively small battle, a standalone, because it's separated by the river. Then you can do the Northern section as a separate battle, and then the Southern section as a separate battle, and then link it together as a mini campaign. So that seemed to work pretty well. And then we did do one game, a friend down in, had a big barn in Devon, had a massive table. Oh, um, 
36 feet by about 18 feet, something like that. So we could do the whole battle on one tabletop there. So we did the final day there. So having run it and having done all the research and having, having run it as a mini campaign from our friends, well, I thought, well, I might as well document this and produce a guide to help other people do the same. And uh, I was debating whether to include much history in that. So I thought, well, people could read the history by reading other books. But I thought, well, I thought it'd be, I'll put an introduction in there, so a historical introduction. Mm-hmm. But that tended to, perhaps because I was interested in it, and that grew into a more fuller historical account of the, of the, of the battle, which was more satisfying for me personally to do that. Mm. So people have got it all in, in one book, the his, good historical account and their wargaming guide. Yeah. So they don't need to go to another history book to mm. to read up about the battle. And I mean, hopefully I tried to make the, the history bit as good as I can. So the historically accurate, trying to make it to sort of academic standards, but readable and easy, easy to follow and understand. Mm. Um, was that a di- was that a difficult choice to make? I mean, obviously, um, I've got Napoleon at Leipzig by Nafzinger behind me, um, which was the 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 go to book for for the battle for me when I w- I was younger, uh, and that's extremely detailed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and some war games guides kind of go there was a battle and Napoleon was in it, and he fought some people from other countries. Uh, so uh, there's a you know you kind of deciding how are you going to draw those two lines too complicated too yeah simple was that a difficult choice to make yeah it it's uh it, i did ponder it for quite a while but in the end i put in what i thought would be satisfying i would be interested to hear feedback to see what war gamers think of it is it too much history or, or is it about right but i guess if they're not uh also i was I was hoping that it would be of interest to non-war gamers. So yeah, yeah. hopefully it's a good account of the battle. So it might be interested to people who not necessarily don't want to war game it, but just interested in the history of that battle. But yeah, I'll be, I'm sort of waiting to hear back from people what they think of the book. Um, and one of the questions would be, is that too much history or not enough mm. or about right? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting and, and a difficult one, a choice to make because um, I think if it was a, a Waterloo guide, you know, you can go into any, you know, major bookstop, go into Waterstones and there'll mm. be five or six books about Waterloo. Whereas yeah. um, information on Leipzig, in, certainly in, in Britain, is is not as widely available. So you, you, you kind of, your knowledge of your audience is less than it would be for Waterloo or Trafalgar, yeah. for, for example. So I, I can certainly see a benefit of having a more in-depth um, historical background to it. And it's yeah. not, it's not, it's not a straightforward battle at the end of the end of the day, is it? No, it's quite a complex battle. You've got uh, obviously it's over several days, and you've got forces coming in from different directions, and there's Sorry. a bit of politics going on as well. You can't yeah. rely on your allies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and international politics and also personal politics like Bernadotte. You don't know what he's going to do, whether he's going to drag his feet or whether he's going to turn up. Yeah, because it's it's one of the few battles where um, if you've invested heavily in a Swedish army, everyone's suddenly your friend, aren't they? Because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, do you want to bring your Swedish along? Well, you, you never normally ask me. Yeah, yeah, but... 
just for this game. <laughs> Coming yeah. So uh, everyone was involved, weren't they? I mean, even the, we, we, the British, uh, um, had yeah. a rocket rocket troop there, and I, I think there was That's a right. couple of couple of officers, like observer officers, there as well. Yeah, those are the observers, but they couldn't resist joining in. So yeah. um, in the cavalry charges, they got carried away and uh, wanted to get get involved. Yeah, it sounds very much like a British officer of the early nineteenth century, most yeah. def most definitely. <laughs> so, did um, did you write the book and and then find a publisher, or, or had you pitched the idea and and moved on in consultation with them? Uh, well, I, I'd started work on it because so, I'd run this mini campaign. I had a fair amount of material to begin with, and I had this idea to publish a guide but um i've always got maybe half a dozen ideas simmering on the back wall and if you have too many ideas none of them come to fruition <laughs> but um i happened to be at a, a do at the national army museum there was a, was a one-day conference run by the society of army historical research which i'm a member and uh, there's a drink afterwards and i got chatting to a couple of guys who had just publish stuff mm. and um it's quite difficult to get published unless particularly in history unless you're an academic or yeah. unless you've previously had stuff published and both of them were neither academics or had previously published but um one of the guys he just had a book published by helion and i mentioned my idea to him and he said oh they're just about they're just starting up this series of war games guides and he gave me the contact details of the commissioning editor at Hellion. And uh, so I pitched the idea to him. Was that and, Charles? Um, Charles Singleton. Yeah, and yeah. Um, he liked the idea. He put it up to his boss. And they they accepted. You have to sort of write a little extract and send it up to them mm. to show that, uh, that you're serious. And, um, yeah, they accepted it. So then we agreed a deadline. And, yeah, that, that deadline is big incentive i think without a deadline it would be drifting on so um, oh, yeah floating around somewhere another idea that's simmering but uh yeah yes yeah, so that's how i got uh gone into that but you you, you got there and it's been published which is absolutely fantastic um yeah. did you have how much involvement did you have with choosing photographs um maps illustrations I, i've noticed in this that there's some uh you know, specific illustrations done for the book of, of you know, I'm just looking at Russian Grenadier and French Light Infantry, uh, some, you know, sketch drawings. Yeah. Uh, did you have much involvement in, in setting that together? Well, the way it works is that um, Helion, they commissioned some artwork specifically for the book. So the, the pen and ink drawings are done by a Russian artist. And then the uh, the front cover is done by a French artist who happens to live in Waterloo, actually. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, Michel Corsell, I think his name is. So Helion drive that. They sort of pass it through me to make sure I'm happy that, and uh, I had no no issues with that. So I didn't see all the pen and ink drawings beforehand, but, um, yeah. but generally I'm happy with the concept and let them get on with that, and they've done that very well. The, um, the maps, the way that works is that I drafted the maps by hand and spent some time doing that and then scanned them and sent them across to the 
to Helion, who have a cartographer. So uh, George Armstrong. George, yeah. George I Anderson, think I think. Uh, yeah, George, George Anderson, Anderson, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so he was the uh, the cartographer at, uh, at Helion, and he put that into a neat format and then sent it back to me just to review. So mm. my review points tended to be on things like the colour to make it clearer. Um, so uh, so that was an iter- a few iterations to get that right. But um, so I drafted them and then they they put them into a neat format. And then the uh, and then the photographs. Um, I had a discussion with Charles Singleton and sort of how many do you need? And mm. and I th- initially I thought well, maybe well I've ten. And he said oh no let's have, let's have thirty. It seemed quite a lot, but um, yeah. I think they look good. Um, and then I so I. I was responsible for getting those. And mm. uh, so there's a mixture in there. There's a few which are sort of staged photo shoots. Yeah. But most of them are from games. So a lot of them are from games that the game that or series of games that I did ran for Leipzig, the mini campaign I ran. Mm. So a lot of them are from that, from that mini campaign, either taken by me or friends who had taken mm. photos of those games. And then... Some of them are, I know that um, Mark Freeth is very good at taking photos. So he, he runs the Wargame Game Holiday Centre. So he kindly sent me some photos of figures and games that he's run. Not Those are not necessarily of the Battle of Leipzig, but um, just you know, good games of figures, of mm. particular troops who may have been at Leipzig. So he kindly provided quite a few photos. And then I edited that down to 30 to send through to mm. Hellion for the book. Yeah, I've um I, I've had a I've had a I've had a good look through and uh, I think I think um a unit of uh, Prussian landware that I painted for the War Games Holiday Center is in one of the photographs. Oh wow. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm just going to write underneath your name and oh. Ken Riley if that's all right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just for, uh, just for one unit in one photograph. Oh uh, right, yeah. <laughs> Um, this isn't a criticism in a, in any way. It's something we've we've spoken uh, about before. Um, some of the photographs are what I would call of a war game in progress, um, rather than something that you would see in particularly in War Games Illustrated, where everything seems to be absolutely pristine, clearly done in a photographic studio, the yeah. best best possible painting, the best best possible terrain. Um, was that a conscious decision to have a mixture of photographs in there? Yes. So I think, I mean, one of the two of the, of the staged ones, I thought, well, if you're going to stage a photo, put your best figures in there. Yeah. Um, so that's a natural thing to do. But sometimes a, a photo of an actual game can be more interesting. You can see there's a bit of action going on. It's 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 actually quite hard to stage a photo and get some animation and sort of action. And if you're you know taking a photo of an actual game, you're not always going to have your best figures in there. Yeah. Um, you might have a few dice in the background and a yeah. few in measuring sticks. But I think that adds to the flavour. It's uh, it shows that you know, it's interesting to people actually playing. I agree with you. With with you. I mean, I um, you know, I do a lot of stage photographs for 
my blog posts and oh. etc um and i do like to see real figures in in action if you like um mm. and, and i quite enjoyed that about this book uh, in that it wasn't oh, good it wasn't all you know the best figures that you can you can possibly you know the pictures that i put out is how you would game at my house um right. and these pictures here are how you would game when you do the battle and i think that's that's mm. brilliant and i i love to see all aspects all aspects of the hobby represented so uh, i'm quite mm. i'm you know i really really do like that's very good indeed um good. so you you decided to go with leipzig and and not Vermeero or Talavera or something a little bit more complex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, is is it is it in your mind to maybe do some more of these on now you've done the biggest, everything from here is downhill, mate. It's yeah. straightforward. So I was hopefully, but I'm I've actually started work on the next one. Um yeah. I'm doing a book on two battles, uh, Lutzen and Bautzen. Which were a couple of weeks apart. They fit quite nicely together. Um, so I'm, I've made a start on that. Um, but it's, uh, although it's in some ways it's simpler, you get the, uh, it's the, the second album syndrome. You've sort of, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've sort of, you've used some of your best tunes already. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need to, um, uh, to, to get to some new ideas in place. Yeah. I think, um, there was a Naf singer. Was it Lutzen and Bouncing in the same book? I can't remember. It's yeah, he wrote another, So, um, yeah, that, that singer is, is one of my sources uh, for yeah for both both books. Um, one of several sources. He's uh, yeah. uh, is he still with us? I don't know. I don't know whether he's still around. I, I don't know. Um, I'm not uh, I'm, sure. I haven't yeah, seen anything I'm, published by him recently, but I'm not. Uh, all the orders of battle that used to be there used to be a guy who used to go around the shows and you could buy them at ten p a sheet. Um, they're they're all online now, free in some uh, database in in the states. So, uh, well, um, listeners, let us know in the comments uh, if we if George is still around. I I, I really don't know because uh, mm. he did a, a seminal book on the eighteen twelve campaign that I read from cover to cover and um, right. And um, I always, I always love his army lists. I don't. It's so complex, and the amount of detail is just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I, yeah. I love, love that side of things. So, so you, you, you're staying with the eighteen thirteen count, and lots of them bouts are quite popular with war gamers, aren't they? Yes, I mean, our, yes, we've certainly staged loots and a few times. Um, bouts and I've done at the Holiday Center. So Lutzen, sorry, Lutzen is uh, interesting. It's an encounter battle. So you've got mm. Russians and Prussians catching the French by surprise. And mm. then uh, Napoleon then having to catch up and rush troops to the battle. And he doesn't start there. So he arrives shortly later with the guard. Um, so an interesting battle. You've got lots of troops arriving, some you know, different directions. So if you've got a good-sized table... You can use the whole table because you've got troops arriving from different directions. Yeah. Um, Bautzen is very different. A set-piece battle where the Allies, the Russians and Prussians, are dug in on a strong defensive position. And the French have got to attack. Uh, so very different battles uh, mm. and different challenges there. So uh, going back to the, the Leipzig book itself, um, we've talked uh, a lot about the, the historical background that you've put in there and, and the level of detail that, that you've gone into. 
Mm. Um, well, the second half of the book is 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 the war game in se- section. And um, how did you decide what was going to go into there? Um, you know, th- there's there's you've got a lovely section on an introduction into the battle, and you've you've got table setups for for all the subsequent scenarios. Um, was it difficult to choose what to go in? Um, no, because I'd um, I suppose it's recreating i've already run the mini campaign so it was mm. perhaps producing something to a, a higher standard for publication yeah. so um the orbat is i did a bit of extra work on the orbat um mm. just to make sure the research there is as good as i could i suppose the extra section there's some extra sections there on how to adapt the orbat for different sets of rules yeah. um so that involved a bit of extra work so I actually had to go out and read a number of other sets of rules and just figure out how you adapt the old bat if you need to for different sets of rules. Um, the terrain, discussions about the terrain, the old bat, that's all, I guess I'd already done that for the campaign that I ran. The, the research that I did, I did more research subsequent to running the campaign, so more historical research. So I didn't actually have to tweak some things, mm. which um, as I learned more, I tweaked the, uh, his, the, the, mm. the game, both on the, both on the Orbat and the terrain. I mean, one, one thing that you have included, um, which is actually um, my favourite Napoleonic battle, um, is the, and apologies for Yorkshire pronunciations, uh, Lieber Voltovitz. Yes, yeah. Yeah, if that's any, anywhere near. Apologies to well, I'd, I'd go with that. <laughs> oh, yeah, close, close enough. Um, and that's um, one of my favourite battles um, because it's just oh. full of cavalry. Yeah. Um, and you, you describe in, in, in the build-up uh, to it in the historical uh, section about Murat stuffing his cavalry together in huge, massive columns and firing it towards the, the Allied lines. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad that that's in there. Is that is that a game Good. that you've uh, done a few times yourself? Yes. Um, in fact, yeah, because that's, uh, although it was a, a very big cavalry battle, it is mm. one of the smaller scenarios which I've done is, is a two-player game. So, because um, I've scaled it down so that you can do that one, is one one player aside. So, yeah, I've done that a couple of times with a friend. Mm. And, um, yeah, it, it's manageable to do with just two players. I mean, it's similar to what, I mean, Morat, Morat similar to what he did at Eilau. He did a massive mm. cavalry charge at the Battle of Eilau, which um, worked. Probably helped by the snowstorm that was going on at the time. Probably caught the Russians unprepared. But, so, uh, yeah, he got... Um, he got caught out at uh, Liebert, Liebert Volkovitz because going in one dense column, he got hit in the flank by Prussian cavalry, which broke up his attack. And then once your front rank start routing, it disorders everybody behind you. So he got mm. real problems. Well, it's it's quite clear that he's that he hadn't listened to our previous section of the podcast because he hasn't read the briefing about keeping <laughs> your, keeping your, keeping your cavalry fresh for the uh, the big battle coming up. Um, yeah. I don't I, I don't know what Napoleon I don't know what Napoleon said to him after. Uh, oh, where's all where's all the heavy cavalry gone? <laughs> is it where is it? 
We are we saw that field over there. I've just wasted it all. <laughs> so um, you then you then go in um, and, and break the battle down into a into a number of different scenarios. Um, mm. Was that to make it more manageable? Oh uh, yes, I mean it's um, to. I mean, not many people are going to have a, if any, a massive table to fit the whole battle on one table. Although having said that, I have many years ago did it at the Holiday Centre with Mike Ingham running it. But it is quite difficult to concertina into a, a smaller space. Mm. So it does naturally break down into different sectors, and then which you can fight independently. So that seemed to be quite a natural, quite a natural break. Yeah, when, when um, I've played the game, the whole battle in the past, um, we wouldn't be able to do it now because our knees wouldn't take it. But we would, we had a we we had a, a hole in the centre of the table where the French players would stand oh. back to back or side to side, um, and then you know the, the battles would go on around this central hole, um, and and we we found that you know even with doing that that you, certainly on the northern flank where where I I fought on one of the battles it turned into a one on one with the player I was fighting right. because the, the forces are manageable and mm. um, as we often say with the big battles that that we do um, I really had very little idea what was going on behind me yeah. which, which is realistic really isn't it it's what a, mm. yeah. a, core, a core commander would be fighting his bit and know nothing about what was going on behind so um I'm just uh, flicking through the book and, and um, I'm looking at the French order of battle for the game. And uh, we, we kind of uh, just mentioned this a minute ago. Um, and we've got 90, 91 infantry battalions and 94 cavalry squadrons and 14 batteries with 51 guns. Um, it's, it's a huge number. It's not a beginner's game, is it? No, no. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the whole battle. Yeah. So if you were doing one section of it, the north, the south, or the west, yeah. then you are dealing with smaller forces. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it is a big battle. It's not, um, it's, you're going to need a, it's a club-sized group of people to play it. Very few people who would have all of it. Um, a, a guy who's been on the podcast, uh, Robbie Roddis, uh, on number four, episode fourteen, I think it was. Um, he built up both sides in six mil. All right, uh, which is one, which is one way of doing it. Mm. It, it, it doesn't have the uh, visual appeal for me personally, as mm. the smaller the small scales, but it's a cheaper way of doing it. So I, I understand what I understand why. Um, and then the Allied order of battle is. 153 infantry battalions, 174 cavalry squadrons, and near enough 20 batteries of guns. And I, I think you've scaled that down as well, haven't you? Yeah, that is <laughs> that is scaled down. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's yeah, it, it's it's brilliant to see because um, there is, as I said earlier on, there's very much an emphasis on on smaller games now, and and I understand mm. it, but there are still lots of us myself and yourself included who do love that bigger game and this is the sort of book that i would have loved when i first started because oh. i would I, I wouldn't have looked at that that as oh god i can't do that i would have looked at that and go right 153 battalions let's get painting um, and then at the end of the year i've still got under to go but i'm still painting uh, so <laughs> I, I i i i would see that as an inspirational target oh. to achieve right um, um and, and i hope people who read and get this book 
understand that uh, and yeah. and uh, play out some of the uh, the different scenarios uh, that that are involved in that. So the book itself is is broken down. So I think I got it right. Six scenarios, is that right? About that, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. You, you've you've done it. You've you've lettered them. So I, I oh, right. to... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hard for me to count when it's like A B C D. Just in summary, then how how are the scenarios set out? Um, how what's in each scenario? Yes. Well, the um, the course was the first one is the the, the Battle of Liebert Volkwitz, which was mm. the Primarily a cavalry battle a couple of days before the main battle, and that's like a standalone scenario. And then you've got the the Lindenau section, which is the western side of the battlefield, separated by the rivers, mm. so uh, quite isolated. Um, then you've got the northern sector and the sub of the the main battle on the sixteenth of October. The southern sector on the 16th of October. Um, and then you've got the the second day's fighting. So on the there was a lull on the 17th, 17th of October. Yeah. And then the 18th, they recommenced. So you've got potentially potentially another battle on the Western Lindenau section, depending mm. on the outcome of the first day. And then you've got the second day's fighting in the north and the south. So mm. Those are your sort of separate scenarios, and um, or you can put the whole lot together if you are able to as one massive battle. Yeah. So as as a as an individual scenario, then um, as like a mini chapter, what's contained within each one of those? Is it briefings that sort of stuff? What do you get in each one? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. So for each scenario, you'll get a a briefing which will give you which geographic location you're dealing with uh, an army list and uh any specific instructions for that scenario and don't forget Um, to read the briefing folks Um, and that describes your map and and any special rules doesn't it because some of them um have you know different things that might have happened or these random roles for stuff and, and victory conditions as well yes yeah, so you've got uh potentially reinforcements coming on mm. so there'll be a bit of randomness of when they arrive mm. um for instance in the northern Senec- in the northern scenario on the first day um there was a french supply train trying to get reach uh reach leipzig from the north from duben mm. so if they don't reach leipzig then leipzig will going to be it's going to be low on ammunition mm. uh, so there's a penalty if they don't get through um they should be able to get through but there's a chance that they may have to fight their way through it's delmas's division i think mm. so each of the each of the scenarios are individually contained but you've yes. got that op- you've got that option to go I, i'm not going to say go big because you, you're kind of going big big aren't you because each of the scenarios are pretty big on their own yeah um yeah so yeah they can be played as individual scenarios yeah we don't we don't mind a big game on this on this show at all. <laughs> um and uh the something that i did like um was um, when I was reading through it, was you, you've got um, quite a, a, a de- 
details section or, or a big discussion about troop classifications and um it's always it's always a, a bone of contention and it starts random arm wrestles um between <laughs> war gamers about what they think their units should be uh, how they should be representation represented yeah so you've got you've done quite a bit of um background work on that and put your thoughts in the in the, in the book as well yes yeah, so i did reasonable amounts of research to read several lot quite a few different accounts of the battle and descriptions of the troops i mean not going back to archives but some some old sources like uh, lorraine petro who was writing in about I think he published his book in 1912. Uh, it's a good book, uh, but he, his book covers the whole of the 1813 campaign. So, um, uh, also some of the descriptions of the troop qualities I got from contemporary sources. There was um, General Charles Stewart, who was the attached to the Army of the North, effectively. Mm. Um, he gave. He was writing home descriptions of the qualities of the troops that he was inspecting so that, that was very useful so um you know, he for example his, his description of the swedes and as a horseman he had a good eye for quality yeah. of horses and ca cavalry how, how good they are mm. um so that that was one of the sources which was very useful mm. um also i mean i, I read a book um dominic Levin. Uh, wrote a book called, uh, I think, Russia Against Napoleon. Uh, excellent book. That gives quite a detailed description of the Russians and about their training. For, for example, the, the Russians, Russia was saw, had plenty of iron, but it was short of lead. Mm. And uh, because it's short of lead, they restricted the amount of live shot they could train with. So they were restricted to firing something like six live rounds a year. Wow. So they were practicing. So they used to practice with uh, clay musket balls, yeah. which are probably not quite the same um, yeah. same feeling as firing <laughs> live rounds. So, um, and he goes into the different types of muskets. Each battalion were having a mixture of muskets, hmm. which caused the uh, ammunition problems. So yeah, so there are you know, genuine differences. Mm. And on on the French side, I mean, the levels of training. Um, all sides had quite a lot of newly raised troops, but some were more newly raised than others. So, mm. for instance, the French, uh, a lot of them may have been, say, new conscripts, but some of the many of them have actually been in the army for six months by the time yeah. they reached uh, or more reached Leipzig, because um, Napoleon had called up his. The class of 1813, Napoleon already started calling up in 1812. So they're already arriving at the barracks in the late 1812. So by the time they're fighting the 1813 campaign, they would have been fully trained on the whole mm. by then. And I think, I think by, the the by the time they've got to Leipzig as well, they will have fought those precursor battles that we spoke about earlier yeah. on. So they, they're, they're not fresh to gunfire, are they? Yeah, by that's right. By Leipzig, they've been through the spring campaign by then, so it's going to have a reasonable idea. And and 
you've got a lot of you've got some optional rules in in the back uh, talking about the different um types of of troops and some ideas a little section there on street fighting as well so you you've you've covered as much as you can in terms of information for the wargamer all right good yeah yeah um and then then um we're just moving on towards the end of the book and we've got you've actually uh, and I quite like this you've put in the historical order of battle uh, to go along with your uh, cut down one but just in um, case someone wanted to expand it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've just moved to the summary of the historical French army and uh, total 205,075 men, uh, which breaks down into 351 battalions, 355 squadrons of cavalry and 775 guns. Um, so get painting you lot out there in um, podcast land, um, because once you've done that... So all right, this the the Allied one goes on forever. Um, so Allies, uh, four hundred uh, three thousand. Uh, sorry, three hundred fifty-seven thousand one hundred nineteen men, uh, broken down into four hundred sixty-two battalions, six hundred seventy-four squadrons, one thousand four hundred thirty guns. Um, so I dare anyone who wins the lottery to put an order in for all of it to the Perrys in one go. <laughs> Just, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Um, and and then the final appendices is is the historical losses, um, and we vary between sixty and ninety thousand for the French, and more stable for the Allies between forty and fifty five thousand. So that's that's very large casualties, isn't it? Yeah. I think I saw somewhere. Did you say that that was the second highest compared to Borodino? I think so. I think it's. Um, I think Borodino might have been the bloodiest in one day. Yeah. Uh, but I think the cumulative losses of Leipzig, I'm not sure, may have been bigger. But, uh, mm. I can't remember. But yeah, it was a very bloody battle, not just a big battle, but percentage of casualties was high. And um, a lot of people captured because the causeway, the bridge was blown prematurely. So there were a lot of uh french who were captured and left stranded and um when you compare that i think i've seen written somewhere that um we didn't see those level of casualties again until the first world war yeah. and when you when you consider the the firepower in the franco-prussian war and, and the size of the actions there that's quite mm -hmm. a big statement isn't it yeah a bloody a bloody thing it was um so final final question for you then i suppose is um it's the anniversary of Leipzig next year. Um, and uh, those of you who listened to the previous podcast will have seen me uh, scratching my head for about 10 minutes to work out which uh, scenario it was. Sorry, which anniversary it was. And it's quite easy to work out. So I embarrass myself. It's the 210th anniversary next year, Rohan, which I'm sure you would have told me. Um, have, you, have, you got any, uh, have you got any plans to play the game yourself next year? Uh, well, I hadn't thought of it. It didn't occur to me. It was, I hadn't realised that it was the 210th anniversary. But, um, yeah. yeah, perhaps I should. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was supposed to do at least It didn't occur section. to me while I was working out. I had 193 and I had all sorts of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I finally um, got to it. Yeah, I should so, do at least a section of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm glad. Um, I'm glad we've maybe uh, persuaded you into that. Um, yeah. It's been it's been lovely having you on today, Johan. Thank you very much. Thank for you. Your time. It's been fun. Yeah. Um, 
let us know when your your next books are coming out. We have a we have a catch up podcast where I get guests on and, and talk to them for forty minutes an hour um, about the current project. So it'd be great All to right. have you back on and talk to that um, to you about that. And the final thing, final thing is, and you don't have to, uh, but there is an option to ask me a question at the end because I've been firing questions at you for over two hours, and I wondered, have you come up with one or have I got away with it? Well, I mean, because you're through your podcast you've got a, a greater feel of where the hobby is i feel that so with the games that i play most of my friends are probably of an age of me mm. do you think there is a danger of young people not coming into the hobby into the historical wargaming in the numbers that there were when we were younger yeah, it's 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 a very interesting question, and and uh, I'd love to be able to tie down the answer. I certainly think we are seeing a crossover um, from a lot of people. You know, my lad plays Warhammer 40k and Games Workshop and and, and other fantasy based games, and we are mm. seeing people crossing over with the likes of um, Bolt Action and. Um, Game games like that that are, are not my cup of tea. Um, mm. You know the, the the small, the skirmishing, but they they're an easy step from Games Workshop to Ball Action to Cruel Seas to Black Powder, those sorts of games. Yeah. Um, so it's great to see that's happening, um, and then my big uh, evangelical thing, if you like, um, my. Um, glowing tree in the darkness is is to get people into big games and to enjoy big games mm. as we did as we did yeah. when we, we were younger we just kind of started at a different point with that historical interest and and with yeah. the big bigger games as we grew up um mm. so it's happening it's happening and i just think um mm, good we just we just need to shout more about it yeah uh, and and trust me i do <laughs> Good. and it yeah. gets me into it gets me into trouble every now and again but there we uh, go so thank thanks again rohan um well thank you for having me and uh, if you'd just like to say goodnight to all the listeners yeah good night <laughs> thank you very much uh, good night everyone and just like that Another show is over. Thank you very much, Rohan, for coming on the show. A uh, lovely chat there about uh, your gaming history and the book. And you can get hold of a copy of that at uh, most booksellers. It's on Amazon, for example. You can also get it direct from Helion, and I shall put a link in the show notes for that. Um, so get big gaming, get your Napoleonics out, and let's have a bit of Leipzig next year. My next guest uh, will need no introduction because I am going to speak to the wonderful and lovely Henry Hyde, who uh, I was on his show not that long ago, and I've met up with him a few times now. And what a lovely guy he is. And uh, Henry's done loads and loads of podcasts. And uh, I know uh, at least one of you out there doesn't particularly like it when podcasts uh, podcast hosts speak to other podcast hosts. Uh, but but I do, and I like Henry a lot. And I'm going to delve deep and give him the full Yorkshire Gamer treatment. So uh, we'll find out what he puts into War Games Room 101, which will be really, really interesting. So looking forward to speaking to Henry uh, next week and uh, getting the show out. Probably it's going to be in 10 days because I've got two shows to get out before uh, Christmas time. 
And the second of those shows after we've spoken to Henry will be the traditional Christmas brews in the Binyard episode. And uh, I really, really hope that I will have a full cast. I'm hoping that Alex and Sean will be joining me, uh, subject to any last minute changes. But that would be absolutely fantastic if the uh, if the old band would get back together. Uh, so we will be somewhere in America at two o'clock in the morning wearing sunglasses uh, me Alex and Sean and I'm really looking forward to it so thanks again for listening and uh, tuning in wherever you are in the world I wish you all the best I wish you some fantastic gaming experiences the next time you you are or if you solo game thanks for listening and enjoy yourself what more can I say uh, until next time see you